0: The first of my posts to the Facebook group was a focused summary of Part 3, Book 7, Chapters 1 to 3. In this chapter, we meet again the Lantanac we recall from the boat with Halmelo. forthright haughty, implacable, strangely calm, and utterly unafraid to die. Having been taken captive and awaiting a sentence of death, He is cavalier about the circumstances, thanking Govan, his enemy, for paying him a visit, saying, on the eve of his execution, that he was beginning to be bored. He is boastful of his own virtue, declaring himself a strange specimen, one who believes in God, tradition, the family, faithfulness, loyalty, duty, virtue, and justice. He is condescending to his captor inviting him to sit down, and saying, You'll have to sit on the floor, but a man who lives in the mud shouldn't mind sitting on the floor. And later, In growing up, you've somehow managed to become smaller. He is blithely dismissive of the Republic's most sacred values, calling their talk of rights hollow, stupid, imaginary, and meaningless— and lauding the real rights of religion, royalty, history, and nobility, which, he tells Gauvin, even decapitated are higher than you. He is censorious of the scribblers, the rhymesters, the paper-scratchers, the intellectuals responsible for that atrocious foolishness of the revolution, saying that none of this would have happened if Voltaire had been hanged and Rousseau imprisoned and that books cause crimes. He is venerating of the centuries of tradition that Govan seeks to demolish, declaring, You'll have no more rights, no more heroes. You can say goodbye to the ancient grandeur. He is implacable, despite being powerless and defenseless, telling Govan, I'd gladly have you shot, and I won't hide from you, the fact that I've done my best to kill you. He is impassive in the face of death, saying, it seems that my head is going to be cut off 36 hours from now. I have no objection to that. And he concludes, ah, I've been telling you some hard truths. What difference does it make to me? I'm dead. I'm sure you have not forgotten Govan's two-word response to Lantenac's five-page diatribe you're free. I imagine him to be saying in effect, despite all that, you're free. One good deed seen from too close hit a hundred criminal acts from him. The ensuing scene plays out painfully. We know what Simordan is about to face, but he doesn't. Hugo establishes that as the presiding judge of the tribunal, Simordan is almost the whole tribunal in himself, the master as well as the judge. And we know that the man whose fate is to be decided by that tribunal is no longer Lantanac, but Simordan's son in spirit, Govan. So, when he signs the notice to the Committee of Public Safety that Lantinac has been captured and will be executed the following day, when he loudly calls to the guards to open the cell, when he folds his arms and orders them to bring him the prisoner, he is serenely satisfied. And we wait in anguish for the shock he is about to face. The moment of truth is delayed by Simordan's efforts to evade it. He must have had an escape route. I should have known. No one would have needed to help him. No, Gauvin, you couldn't have helped him. It's not possible. But Gauvin forces him to face the truth, and the truth is Simordan's guillotine. He was as pale as a severed head. He then assumes a detached and impassive manner as he interrogates Gauvin but we know it must be sheer agony for him. Govan acknowledges his guilt, nobly telling his judges that when a guilty man acknowledges his guilt, he saves the only thing worth saving, honor. He asks them to convict him and requests the death sentence, saying it is just and necessary. The decision is left to the three men of the tribunal. First, Gauchamp, the dispassionate man of law, the one who stares at the order on the poster and avoids the eyes of the men, the sword of justice with no heart. He votes for death. Then Radoub, Govan's disciple of clemency, the compassionate soldier, the man who adopted the three children and then asked for the favor of risking his life to save them. He votes that Govan be made a general, that Govan be made head of the Republic, that he be allowed to die in Govan's place. He votes for acquittal. And finally, it is Simordan's turn. This time, his face is beyond the paleness of a severed head. It is the color of earth, as he votes for death. Sergeant Radub faints, and had I been standing up when I read this, I might have to. The second of my posts to the Facebook group was about my favorites from this section. I know this will sound familiar, but... Radoob. Radoob is my favorite. I love every detail of the scene in which Radoob casts his tribunal vote. I love the courageous commitment to his values implied by the comment that, quote, he had finally allowed his wounds to be dressed, unquote. He had had other things to do, and after all, an ear is just an ornament. I love that when it is his turn to speak, he starts with a bold and wordless declaration, when he stands up, turns to the accused, and salutes him. I love all the fervent, incredulous, and uncompromising statements that precede and justify his verdict of acquittal. Quote, when I heard that Major Govan had saved Lantenac from your stupid guillotine, I said, "Major, I'd give you the cross of Saint Louis if there were still crosses and saints and Louis." Quote, what? Major Govan has been keeping those blockheaded royalists on the run for the past four months, and when you have a man like that, you try not to have him any more. And you, Citizen Govan, if you were a corporal instead of a major, I'd tell you that you were talking nonsense a little while ago. Unquote. Unquote. I want my leader. I need him. I like him more today than I did yesterday. Send him to the guillotine? Don't make me laugh." I love that after this speech his wound opens up again. He has fought a different kind of battle, but a battle nonetheless. I love his refusal to accept the terms of the question put to him. Instead of declaring a simple verdict of guilty or innocent, declaring that Gauvin be made head of the Republic. I love that this brawny soldier, with his athletic agility, his bristling mustache, his indefatigable courage, and his superhuman strength of body and character, hears the final verdict and faints. I told you I fell in love with him. Can you blame me? The last of my posts to the Facebook group were reflections on the Read With Me experiment. As we reach the final chapter of 93, I have been reflecting on the whole experience. I will never forget that fateful day that Lauren Meyer nudged me on Facebook about a request she had made for literature recommendations. I made a few, and then commented offhand, I should start some sort of online Read With Me book club. As soon as the words were typed out on the screen, my fate was sealed. I thought, I should really start some sort of online read with me book club. It had to be done. There's much I love about my career as a whole, but by far my greatest bliss comes from the part of my job that involves sharing my passion for literature. So, the idea of being able to share new works of literature on a steady schedule with an enthusiastic group far larger than the 30 students I teach every day at school was thrilling to me. I embarked on an experiment, and you were kind enough to join me. I had to puzzle my way through a lot of things. What platform should I use? How much reading would people actually do? Does providing audio help? Can I work this into my already busy life? What sort of commentary is most helpful or engaging? How can I motivate people to stay committed? I'm still refining my answers, but I consider the experiment a success, and I hope you do too. Here are just a few of the things I love about running this group. First, the community. A while back, I made a 93-related joke to the Facebook group, and a lot of people chimed in with follow-up quips of their own. At the time, I said teasingly, I've created a group of people who get my 93 jokes. My life is complete. But beneath the humor is something I feel with the utmost sincerity. To be able to share this book with all of you has been richly rewarding for me, and I love that we now have this experience in common. Second, reading aloud. Given our reading pace in my classes at Van Damme Academy, with kids whose full-time job is school, I can't possibly read all the books aloud, though I do claim that right for at least the first and last chapters. I love reading to people, and I have especially loved creating the readings for this group. Knowing that so many of you are listening helps me to truly feel like we are reading it side by side, like you are actually reading with me. Third, Your Questions and Comments The discussion on the Facebook group has been of the highest caliber. Everyone has been thoughtful, genuine, respectful of each other, and such a pleasure to interact with. I've benefited from fascinating translation notes, insightful commentary, productive questions, and warm gratitude from our incredible community of members. Some of you have said you're too intimidated to join the conversation. I wish you wouldn't be. I really want to hear your voice. Fourth, the tribute to Hugo. I have long considered it a travesty that in this country, Hugo is not more widely read. As Paul Blair mentioned in one of his comments, quote, When Victor Hugo died, 40,000 people spent the night on Paris streets, hoping to view his casket as it moved from the Arc de Triomphe to the Pantheon, the resting place of France's national heroes, unquote. Yet I meet few adults who have read even one of Hugo's novels, and certainly not 93. I have enjoyed the opportunity to shout Hugo's name from the rooftops, and to get 600 people to listen. There is so much more, and I will find the time to write about it. But meanwhile, the essence of my reflection is this. I had high hopes for this project, and for me, it has been better than I dreamed. More excitement lies ahead and I can't wait to share it with you.